0: Continuing in our spiritual warfare series, today we are looking at the first of three messages on the weapons of our enemy in spiritual warfare. Last time we were together, we spent our time considering the battlefields upon which this spiritual warfare is fought. And we broke the nature of this battlefield down into uh, three general areas, the body, the mind, and the heart. And as we broke uh, these down, remember, we said that while the body is often the place that becomes the most evident, the most obvious, because it's the place where we see the manifestations of our sinful tendencies, where the spiritual battle manifests itself openly, because uh, it's, it's uh, in, in the body that, that we, we are interacting with the material elements of actions and, and the material outworkings of our thoughts and such it is not actually the place where the majority of the battle is fought. And I say the majority. There are some things which are uh, um, more carnal in, 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 in a character, whereby we see a large por- par- portion of the battle in the physical. But the majority of the things that we fight with, the majority of the battle that rages is in our mind and in our heart. And by the time it's finding its way out into actions and dispositions of the body, we've already lost the battle. Much rather then, we settled on these two ideas, that the body is the vessel through which the sin of the heart is expressed. When I see expressions of sin in my body, I am seeing expressions rooted in decisions of my heart the seat of feeling unto volition, right? It's, it's, it's the place where I indulge my desires and my, my lusts, and then as I indulge these things in my heart, then they become evident in my actions, in my words, in uh, the, the things that I do, the places that I go, uh, the things that I say. But that's not where the sin often starts. And we pointed to Jesus in Matthew, right, where Jesus says that if you lust after a woman, you have already committed adultery with her in your heart. And whereas the system of the religious system that was erected in, in Israel of the day said, well, as long as what is in your heart or in your mind does not come out of your, your, your body, you're fine. What a good person is defined as a person who does good things. Jesus came and said, no, if the sin is in your heart, in God's eyes, you've already committed the sin, whether or not it ever makes it out into your body, right? My heart is deceitful, my heart is selfish. And so. As my heart pursues these ends, the expressions of these pursuits come out as sin in my body, but it began as sin in my heart. And then the second is that the body is the vessel through which sins of the mind can be inspired. And we spoke here about the tendency for the body to be the receptacle for things of this life, which then inspire us to falter in our mind, whether that be Uh, hunger or fatigue or whatnot that weaken our will or whether it be impulses and urges of the body that find measure of temptation in the mind or philosophies that root themselves through our our ears and our eyes and such in the mind, the body is the vessel through whom the battle of the mind can can really be uh, inspired. And we explored general biblical warnings from Paul regarding how it is that the mind and the heart can be directed into sinfulness last time, using this illustration of w- weeds, right? That when a weed springs up, and I particularly chose dandelions because it's very evident, uh, right? You've got a, a, a very bright yellow head on a dandelion. We can be plucking off the heads of those dandelions all day, but if we don't uh, f- trace that, that the head of that weed to its root, and pull it up by the root, we're just going to have the same problems growing again and again and again. Now we looked at this generally but we didn't exactly explore what these battlegrounds looked like, we only explored uh, the, the, the battlegrounds themselves. We didn't explore the weapons, we didn't explore the fight, we only explored the battle upon which we see the fight. And that's what we're going to do, begin to do this week and over the course of the next several. And once again, uh, What I'm going to do this week and over the next several weeks, as with many of these messages, is systematize various concepts from the Bible. And you know that this is not my favorite way to preach. I like to go chapter and verse, verse by verse, starting in chapter one, verse one, and going to the end of the book. And that's the way I like to preach. But there are certain concepts which need a more systematic approach where you compile all of the things that the Bible teaches about a topic and bring it together in a way that allows us to understand the breadth and the length of a topic rather than just um, understanding it as we get there in any given passage of Scripture, and this means I'm going to be going outside of the direct words found in our Bibles in order to group various ideas together based upon their relationships one to another. I, as with many pastors and teachers, do this with a desire to give an organized view of a concept by combining these many scriptures into a coherent singular thoughts. But what this also means naturally is that the various organizations labels, and categories that I'm going to give you are mine, not God's. And you need to know that, that I'm not going to be comprehensive here and that I'm putting things together in a way that makes sense to me and hopefully makes sense to you. And I'm going to be coming into passages of scripture and it's my fullest intent. And I did my due diligence to make sure that as far as I'm concerned, I'm using them in context, but I won't be giving you all that context. And so because of these things, know the limitations of of what a systematic study can do and um, understand that as, as we walk through. So we're going to begin today, and we're going to look at two of four of the weapons that the enemy, that would be the world, the flesh, and the devil, and specifically as we think of these things, that the enemy can use to attack us in our Christian walk. And the first weapon that we see Satan and the enemies use as a means by which to attack the Christians, is a weapon of false ideas. We see numerous warnings in scriptures about the danger of ideas that have any number of potential virtues as it relates to the visible world around us, but which fail at the most crucial point that any idea can fail at. Namely, they don't reflect truth. There's a lot of really great ideas out there, a lot of really great theories, a lot of really great concepts, but they lack in a very important and essential area, they're simply not true. Right? They're interesting, they're engaging, they uh, have any number of, of, of values as it relates to to uh, logic and, and pragmatism, the pragmatic solutions of the world around us. They might get you a lot of money, they might get you fame, they might get you honor, they might get you uh, ahead in this world, but what they don't do is they do not reflect the reality of 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 the world as God has created it. And all around us we see truth claims which compete with those of the Bible. The interesting thing about all these truth claims, though, is they always seem to center in the same place. And we have studied this since the very beginning of the spiritual warfare series, that as uh, the serpent beguiled Eve in the garden, we have seen temptation, we have seen these ideas, the world, the flesh, and the devil, always be presented and, and, and seem to funneled down to the same basic idea, the same competing truth claims seen throughout the whole Bible, though described and manifest in countless ways, though always finding new incarnations, though always finding new ways to, to show itself. And the place where all of these ideas point to is self. Me. The elevation of self. That man in himself is enough that man can truly be like God. Was that not the serpent's promise in the garden? Thou shalt not surely die, but God knows that the day you eat thereof, you shall be as a God, knowing good and evil. Was that not the allure that as Eve looked at the fruit, she said it was pleasant to the eye, that it was good for food, that's the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and that it was a tree to make one wise, the pride of life, that self, that is indulging me, my gratifications, my desires, and, uh, and, and ultimately my elevation above God. And what you'll find as we walk through the, the, the battlegrounds that, uh, over, uh, not battlegrounds, the, the weapons of the next um, several weeks, you'll find that if we boil everything down, it comes down to God's way or my way. And my way is wrapped in all of the philosophies of the world and whatnot, so it's our way is humanity. But that's really what it comes down to. And this false idea is the root of idolatry, the root of empty religious zeal, the root of every humanistic philosophy, ideology, and pseudoscience man has ever devised. The warnings against such things in Scripture are manifold. Again, we could spend many weeks just covering this topic, but none perhaps more clear than the warning that Paul gives in Colossians chapter 2. In Colossians chapter two, beginning in verse eight, the Bible says, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit, after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. For in him that would be in Christ dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And then the first half of verse 10, for but ye are excuse me, and ye are complete. In him. I'll get that conjunction right there. Paul warns the readers of the church in Colossae to beware lest they be spoiled. And that word they're spoiled in the Greek literally means to be plundered, to be stripped of that which they have. The idea of plundering, plundering one of their treasure, plundering one of that which has value. And Paul says to those who are in Christ, You have this mind whereby you have set yourself aside and elevated Christ unto salvation, and then you are called to walk in this way, crucified with Christ dead to self and alive unto Christ. Uh, Paul would go on to say in chapter three, mortify therefore the deeds of the flesh, right? Mortify therefore yourself, kill yourself. Not the idea of allowing yourself to die physically, but death to your sense of self, to, the, 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 to your rights, to your indulgences, to, to your desire to elevate yourself above the will of God, to elevate your perceptions above the reality of God. And as he says this idea, he says, don't let the philosophies of man, the philosophies of this world, false ideas, spoil you, plunder you of this mind, whereby you are setting yourself aside and you are elevating Christ's way. The things which threaten to strip from them, there in Colossae, true value. And Paul lists these as philosophy and vain deceit things which Paul describes as being after the traditions of men, after the rudiments of this world, but opposed to Christ. Now, the warning here is against any number of ways of thinking, which, while they might be interesting and might seem to reflect the elements of the world as we perceive them with our senses, are still nonetheless reflections of the world as man has designed it, not as Christ has designed it. Ideas which clever men think up in an attempt to explain the world or to navigate this world which have any number of interesting and tremendously clever things to commend them but which for all of their cleverness, all of their interesting ideas, all of their solutions, creativity and such, deny Christ and exalt self. And Christians are subverted by these sorts of things all the time. Let's talk about a few of them together. First, let's talk most generally about the God of self. Self is the mortal enemy of God. Throughout the Bible, God presents various things which are at their nature opposed to God so that you cannot have both God and these things. We covered it uh, a week or two ago. Jesus said in Matthew 6, verse 24, ye cannot serve God and mammon. Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 21, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils. You cannot be partakers of the Lord's table and of the table of devils. And we find throughout the Bible that when at once man exalts himself, he is always doing it at the expense of exalting God. And yet going all the way back to the beginning, the God of self has sought to claim man's loyalties, be it in the garden, as we said, with Eve, Or at the Tower of Babel, where man sought to exalt humanity to stay together, that they might uh, build a tower that reaches unto the heavens. Or in the days of Nebuchadnezzar, when he built that golden statue, in order that men might bow down to an image of himself. Man has always believed that his greatest potential, the lie of humanism, has always been that man's greatest potential is in himself, in his own capabilities, in his own worth, in his own power, in his own potential. And this false idea is no less prevalent today than it ever has been. It takes various forms, perhaps new forms. There's always new labels, there's always new ways of talking about it. And yet today we find it in this movement of self esteem, self worth, self confidence, self love. A philosophy that insists that I cannot love others until I first learn to love myself. That's interesting. When Jesus, our great example, came to the earth, the Bible says he made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant that he might save us from our sins. Whereas the rudiments of this world and the traditions of men say, no, you must first love yourself, the Bible says that Jesus debased himself, lowered himself, humbled himself. Whereas the world around us says you must elevate, you must seek unto yourself, you must pursue yourself and, and, and your, your, your best. Jesus Christ made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant. We live in a world that espouses philosophies that insists that personal happiness is the highest good and even subjugates reality to personal happiness even subjugates biology to perception. And yet, as we consider this, a philosophy that says, if a man is most fulfilled sitting at home writing nonsense rather than getting a job, well, we should facilitate him in these things. We should allow people to live within the, the, the uh, blindness of their own thoughts rather than compel them into reality. What we find in the scriptures is far opposed to this idea that we allow people to elevate themselves above everything else in this world. Isaiah 53, 4, and 5 describes Jesus this way, Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. So if we are to reject the rudiments of this world and the traditions of men and those things which are not after Christ, we have to recognize that this God of self, this God whereby I seek to elevate my way, my thinking, my desires, my priorities, my delusions above reality, above the things which are, in, uh, that w- which are of Christ, which are of the way that God has designed this world, they cannot be of Christ. The idea of self-esteem, self-love, self-worth, self-confidence, and all of its derivatives have many things going for it, except that it is the exact opposite of the example that Christ has laid. And in doing so, in pursuing these philosophies, it actually strips from you the power of God in your life, manifest through self denial, through selfless submission, through humility and submission to the Lord. Another false idea is one which Paul labels in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 20 as science falsely so-called. Any Christian with their eyes open today knows that the word science has very little true meaning in our society anymore. Trust the science, they say. Follow the science, they say. And we find that what people call silence is really a compilation of convenient and selectively edited factoids arranged creatively in order to prove a predetermined point and arrive at a pre-desired outcome. But what we need to remember is that this is nothing new. 2,000 years ago, Paul was warning Timothy about about science falsely so-called. Man has always sought to use science. And by, that way, by the way, the, that word science simply means knowledge, right? The word science it means knowledge. We have, we have pared it down today to a discipline, and then now we've broadened it again to whatever I want to impose upon the world. But the word simply means knowledge. Man has always sought to elevate experts to use knowledge and twist knowledge to fit their narrative to maintain control and power. Now let me be careful here. I'm not saying that knowledge generally or the discipline of knowledge that we now call science is evil or wrong. Observational science, that discipline, whereby something is observable, testable, and repeatable is a tremendous discipline which accounts for all of the wonderful advancements in civilization, from the beginning of time until now. Everything that we're enjoying here, whether it's these lights or this projector or uh, the heat that we're enjoying, all of this is because of observational science. The idea that people could observe things, test things, repeat things, understand the, the world as God has designed it, and then harness that world for our benefit. That is a wonderful thing. But the problem is when smart people, the kinds of people whose society looks to specifically because of their knowledge, uh, the, called today um, experts, begin to manipulate that knowledge with ulterior motives, generally driven by the God of self, treasure of this world, power, money, and control. And they exploit the fact that people do not have as much knowledge as them to maintain control. And the biggest problem, now we see this as it relates to society today, right? Obviously. But here's the real problem when it gets into the church. And when we begin to submit our understanding of the world around us as it relates to Christ, as it relates to the Word of God, and we begin to subjugate the the knowledge of God and the way that God has designed the world to science falsely so called. Whereas true observational science is the discipline of identifying and categorizing the world as God has designed it and as it functions according to God's design. Science so-called is the discipline of manipulating the senses in order to deny the existence and authority of the true and living God over the created order. And we read about this in Romans chapter 1. The Bible says this in regard to unbelieving men. For the wrath of God, verse 18, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold, the idea there of holding the truth and unrighteousness is the idea of suppressing it. and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image like to corruptible man and to birds and to four-footed beasts and creeping things. Romans 1 tells us that it is not that man does not know of God or even understand his power and his Godhead, but rather that knowing God, man has chosen to reject him and refuse to glorify him as God. And rather, they have rebelled against God. They have darkened their own hearts And they call this darkness wisdom so that the wise men of this world insist on the foolishness of that that, that it is foolish to believe in God because they believe their worldly wisdom has disproven God. And yet, in professing themselves to be wise, they have only become fools. Elevating instead other things to God. Man elevates himself... He says, we have liberated ourselves from God. We have liberated ourselves from these fairy tales. We have liberated ourselves from this make-believe idea only to then go worship trees or animals. Only then to erect governments as their God and to pray to the government to solve their problems. Only then to erect themselves as their own God through various philosophies of sexual liberation or nihilism or feminism or any of these other things. Any number of ways that mankind idolizes themselves of the created world rather than the God who created the world. Denying God's design in all facets, calling themselves wise for denying God's design only to end up in in things which are more foolish than anything, anything that is called God. But make no mistake about this everyone worships something and in the absence of god as the object of worship something will inevitably take its place so the weapons of false ideas first the weapon that is the god of self that if it can be implanted in my mind that i need to focus more upon myself self esteem self worth self-confidence, these things, and that I need to spend my time thinking about me and looking to me and elevating me and making myself better in, 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 a, in a me-centered way, what I'm actually doing as I, as I understand those philosophies and as I, I uh, appropriate them into my life is I am turning my eyes off of God. I'm elevating myself at the expense of God. Then science so-called, not the actual true observable idea of science, whereby there are observable, repeatable, testable claims that I can make and actually grow and learn things about the world that's around us, but rather the ideas, the humanistic ideas of knowledge whereby we ex- uh, our, our um, society has exalted itself against the knowledge of God by claiming to know things that are contrary to the word of God and demanding that these be the truths and the axioms by which we live our lives. And then finally, as it relates to the weapons of false ideas, empty religious devotion. This one is the focus of a significant amount of New Testament teaching. Significantly more than uh, science falsely so called. I don't know about more than the God of self because the God of self is just about everywhere. But the idea of empty religious devotion is perhaps the most insidious of all of the ideas of false ideas uh, that that would attack the mind because it's the one that can look most like the truth without actually being true. When a person engages in uh, science falsely so-called, what they are doing is that they are elevating truth claims above the claims of God, and if they understand the, the claims of God, then they know exactly what they're doing by elevating these truth claims. Even the God of self, the idea of self, there's a, a real idea that when a person is struggling in any number of ways and and they need to, to they, they want to feel better and, 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 and whatnot, there can be Uh, this idea, and yet simultaneously when we look at the scriptures, we see the God of self is standing so contrary to that which the scriptures tell us about God himself that, that that's fairly obvious. But when we look at false or empty religious devotion, moralism, it is the idea of disciplining my flesh to do things or to look in a way that does appear to be right before God while simultaneously having absolutely no alignment or devotion to the God who gave us those expectations. The danger here is that we erect a false set of values, standards, or actions in our lives that reflect the truths of God while doing these things not for God or in obedience to God, but rather doing them as a means of earning favor or gaining moral superiority or judging others or controlling others. Nearly every New Testament book has stern warnings against empty religion, but since we're in Colossians, and we're in Colossians there already, why don't we stay in Colossians? In Colossians chapter 2, staying even in the same chapter, verses 16 through 23, Paul says this, "...let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of an holy day or in the new moon or in the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ." Let no man beguile you out of your reward in a voluntary humility or in worshiping of angels, intruding into those things which he hath not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind and not holding the head from which all the body, by joints and bands, having nourished, ministered, and knit together, increased, increaseth excuse me, with the increase of God. Wherefore, if ye be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world... Why, as though living in the world, are ye subject to ordinances? Touch not, taste not, handle not, which all are to perish with the using, after the commandments and doctrines of men, which things have indeed a show of wisdom in worship and humility and neglecting of the body. Was that will worship and humility and neglecting of the body? Not in any honor to the satisfying of the flesh. So Paul speaks here about the idea of an empty religious devotion an empty religious devotion that has you denying yourself in various ways, and and thus there's a show of wisdom in the idea of denying self. That's the God of self that we've already talked about. But in fact, what it is doing is it is directing you toward hypocrisy, judgmentalism, and selfishness. And Paul warns of two two dangers here. The first is a religious zeal that would encourage a false worship of spiritual entities that are not the head who is Christ. And then second, of a deep and abiding devotion to the the denial of the things of this world, taste not, handle not, touch not, a system of rules, rules erected after the rudiments and traditions of men, rules which have a show of wisdom in that they seem to reflect humility. They seem to reflect a, a denial of bodily impulses, but which when exercised as their own ends, rather than in obedience and subjection to Christ, become a deceit, become a method of beguiling men, stripping them of their internal reward, leading men to become proud and judgmental, looking around at others and saying, well, I'm better than them because I do this and they do that, or because I don't do this and they do do that. And this leads to pride rather than humility. Leads us to judge others rather than leading us to judge ourselves. To live in hypocrisy rather than in humble sincerity. And this is the fruit in our bodies by which we know that this is a danger. Because anything that leads to pride, anything that leads to self, is not of Christ. cannot be of Christ. Because anything that leads me to judge others rather than leading me to judge myself is not of Christ. Because anything that would cause me to live a lie, to live in hypocrisy rather than to live in sincerity, is not of Christ. And these are just three of any number of false ideas which Satan can wield as weapons in this world to distract the believer from Christ. False ideas. And take note of this very important standard. The standard is Christ. There's no way that I could ever give you an exhaustive list of all of the ways fal- uh, that, that false ideas manifest themselves. They're coming up with new ones every day. To, in order even to keep up with the list of false ideas, of false labels. You know, the, the, the new one that's found its way into modern society in the last, uh, well, I mean, it, it started in the 40s and 50s, but the new one that has really gotten a hold in the last couple of years is critical race theory. A terrible, racist, false idea. But how many of them can you keep up with? I can't spend every week preaching sermons about the false ideas. I've got more Bible to cover than that. But I don't have to. See, mankind's always coming up with creative new ways to deny God. Satan is always seeking new and creative ways to divert you from the truth. But the fact is, every false idea bears the same marks. Every false idea inevitably gives itself away because they are not aligned with Christ. And so what do we do? What does the Bible call us to do? What does Ephesians chapters 1 through 3 call us to do? What does Colossians chapters 1 and 2 call us to do? It doesn't call us to go to school and learn every false philosophy. It calls us to know Christ so well that the false philosophies stand out clearly. Look for the marks of Christ. These false ideas are not of the truth. They stand out when they are not of Christ. They may sound good. They may look good. They may feel good. But they stand in opposition to the life, to the ministry, and to the message of the express image of God, the word of God made flesh, Jesus Christ. And so in that they stand in opposition to Christ's life, ministry, and message. No matter how good they sound or look or feel, we know that they are a lie. And no lie is of the truth. And so we reject it. And this is the weapon of false ideas. Second, and the final one that we will look at today, we'll have two more over the course of the next two weeks, the weapons of temporal gratification. This is what Hebrews chapter 11, verse 25, describes as the pleasures of sin for a season. Those things of the world which our body and mind crave, but which are defined by being wholly temporal, wholly carnal, and without any spiritual value and in fact, stealing our time and our affection away from the things of God for the gratification of the things of this life. In Jesus' parable of the seeds and the sower, where Jesus likens the receptivity of the hearts of men to various types of soil, one of the soils upon which the seeds of the word of God fell, and I'm not going to cover the entire parable, was called thorny ground. It was soil that was soft enough that the seeds could take root, and the seeds could even spring up. But there were thorns around it. These are the, you know, we talked about weeds last week. Weeds, right? And the thorns choked out the good seed so that it died. And as Jesus was interpreting this parable, in Matthew 13:22, he said this, He also that received seed among the thorns is he that heareth the word and the care of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and he becometh unfruitful. So Jesus describes thorns as the care of this world and the deceitfulness of riches. And indeed throughout Jesus' ministry in particular, the concept of the deceitfulness of riches would stand in, uh, would be a regular stand in for the promises and the allures of the kingdom of this world. That the promises of this world for fame, for glory, for money, for power, for gratification of our lust, sexual gratification, prestige, honor, these are lies, these are deceits, they are temporal, they're fleeting, they're empty, things which exist for a few years while we walk upon this earth, but you certainly can't take them with you, only to remain in the hands of others when we, when, when we leave, when we step from the brevity of this life into eternity, where only the, riches that ex- the, the only riches that exist are those which were forged through faith, not through the worldly, temporal, or material concepts of success. And this is a good time to remind us that the Bible does not say that money is evil, or that honor is evil, or that power is evil. The problem is not when you have these things, the problem is when you live for these things. The problem is not when these worldly ambitions exist. The problem is when these worldly ambitions override and supersede the principles of Christ in us. So we need to be clear about that. Just as as the Bible doesn't say science is evil in its proper sense, but only science falsely so called. So to money, fame, power, these are not evil in their proper sense, but they are evil when we devote our lives to them. They become to us idols and gods. Jesus would say it this way in Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth where moth and rust doth corrupt and where thieves break through and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Skipping to verse 24, no man can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. Ye cannot serve God and mammon. Skipping to verse 31, therefore take no thought Saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. That would mean the unbelieving world. For your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of all these things. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Take therefore no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. Again, we find much of the New Testament exhorting us in this regard to set aside temporal gratifications of the lust of the flesh. Again, not to say that you don't eat, you need to eat or you'll die. Not to say that you don't drink, you need to drink or you'll die. Not to say that you don't need to be clothed or to have a roof over your head. But that when we devote our lives to the gratification of the things that this world has to offer, when we devote our lives to the things of temporal gratification, when these things are the things that that consume us, are the things by which we prioritize our time and our, our, our abilities and our money. The fact of the matter is these things promise so much but deliver so little. They promise so much but deliver so little. And when we do pursue these lusts to their fullest ends, they always carry with them shame and guilt and ultimately separation from fellowship with God. Now, there's an entire Old Testament book, as a quick aside, that speaks of these things. It's the book of Ecclesiastes. I've preached through it. I would encourage you to listen to that series if you've not done so already. A man who had all he who was given more wisdom than any man in the world, but also had money and power and influence and fame. And so with both of these things at his disposal, he sought to prove the wisdom that God had given to him with all of his resources. So he says, God has told me these things, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. God has told me these things, that there is no true fulfillment in all of the elements of this world and the lusts of this world. But I have every means at my disposal to prove that. So he went to prove it. So he built great buildings, did great monuments, he uh, sought out the greatest musicians in the world. He had 700 wives and 300 concubines. So he pursued uh, uh, whatever his heart desired as far as, as gratifications of his lusts. Uh, he had all the money that he could, he could possibly use. He had the best foods from around the world. He had everything that life could offer him. He even uh, committed himself to alcohol and, and the idea, um, which, is, which was common then and is still common now, that, that, that alcohol is a means by which to uh, extract pleasure from this life. And he described it all as vanity and vexation of spirit. Temporal gratification that left him empty and unfulfilled in the end. This is the man that, that commits his entire life to making it, to getting enough money to be that guy, to be the guy, only to get there and to realize that there's not a lot there for him. And so Solomon ends with that great adage, that that great exhortation, not denying the fact that it's a wonderful thing to be able to, to eat and enjoy life as unto the Lord, to rejoice with the wife of your youth as a gift from the Lord. But then he says, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter, right? Ecclesiastes 12 verses 13 and 14. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man, because God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. The wisest man on the, in the world with all of those resources at his disposal proved wisdom and found wisdom to be true. Satan is still pounding at that door with us, though. The world, the flesh, and the devil are knocking at that door telling us it's better over here. Telling us that true happiness, true satisfaction, true fulfillment is found in the exact same things that Solomon dealt with thousands of years ago. Sexual gratification, substances, money, power, influence, honor, fame, uh, the, the eating, drinking, uh, music, all of the pleasures of this life. The exact same things that today society is saying, these are the things that you want. These are the things that fulfill. These are the things that satisfy. Our entire culture is beginning to be built around this doctrine of covetousness whereby everybody is angry at the rich man because they don't have and he does, somehow thinking that if they became rich, they'd be happy. Somehow thinking that if our society was more wealthy, that crime would go down because rich men don't commit crimes, do they? Right? It's a doctrine of covetousness whereby we always want more because we are always looking for the end of the rainbow. We are always looking at the next, the grass is always greener on the other side, always. Always. But what have we found for generations, for thousands of years, man has found the same thing. He gets over to that grass and you know what? The grass is still greener somewhere else because these things don't satisfy. They never have, they never will. And yet that, uh, that allure, that lust, that temptation is still there and it will be there. This is one of the enemies. This is one of the weapons of our enemy. Consider some of the New Testament teachings. About the emptiness and the deceitfulness of temporal gratification, you who are in Christ, Paul writes in Romans chapter six, verses nineteen through twenty-three. I speak after the manner of men, because of the infirmity of your flesh. For as you have yielded your members servants to uncleanness and to iniquity unto iniquity, even so now yield your members servants to righteousness unto holiness. In the same, to the same fervor and degree, he says to these believers, that you once served your sinful gratifications, now serve the Lord in righteousness unto holiness. Notice then, he says in verse 20, for when ye were the servants of sin, ye were free from righteousness. What fruit had ye then in those things whereof ye are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death, but now being made free from sin and become servants to God, Ye have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What fruit had ye, Paul asks, in those things whereof ye are now ashamed? In those things that you know did not satisfy, and because you knew they did not satisfy, it compelled you to flee to Christ, and now you look back on them with some measure of longing. Why? Did they ever fulfill? Did they ever satisfy? Did they ever bring anything other than the fruit of emptiness? The wages of those things, the end of those things were death. Vanity and vexation of spirit. Paul says you've been made free from that now. You have your fruit unto holiness. You live as unto the Lord and you can... Lay up treasure where moth and rust doth not corrupt and where thieves cannot break through and steal. Live the same zeal as servants to righteousness as you once lived zealously as servants to uncleanness, Paul says. What value was there in that sin? This isn't just a warning, as we've said before the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. This isn't just a warning to the unbeliever about the inevitable results if they, have not, if they do not come to Christ, whereby if you do not believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved, you will spend an eternity separated from God in a place of conscious torment called the lake of fire. And that's very true. That's the ultimate wages of sin. But believer, the wages of sin is still death. When we persist in the gratification of our own lives and of our own lusts, we separate ourselves from fellowship with Christ. Not unto damnation, that's covered on the, at the cross, but unto a lack of joy, a lack of peace, a lack of the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. And lest we only allow Paul to do the talking, Peter warns of these things too. 1 Peter 2, verses 11 and 12. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. Peter tells us that the indulgence of fleshly lusts, the pursuit of temporal gratification at the expense of spiritual and eternal principles, war against your soul. This is a, this is, these are the weapons of the enemy a weapon of the enemy's warfare against your soul to keep you distracted, to keep you out of fellowship, to keep you ineffective for Christ. And then you start to feel unfulfilled. And then do you know what the next weapon that comes in? The arrows come in of temporal gratification. And they hit you and you indulge them. And you indulge these temporal gratifications and you find that they're not enough and they're not satisfying you. So you pursue them to the extent that you can pursue them and it's not enough. And then... When you're in this place of emptiness, Satan comes in and says, well, the problem is that you just don't love yourself enough. The problem is that you just have low self-esteem. The problem is that you lack self-confidence. You just need to spend more time on yourself. You just need to look more to yourself. You just need to think more about yourself. And that's round two. That's volley number two. That's the God of self that we covered already. And then it throws you deeper and deeper and deeper down the spiral of self into that darkness. Truly these philosophies and vain deceits plunder the soul in order to grant temporary gratifications. And truly these are the weapons that the enemy uses against the believer in this world. Now I'm only halfway through. Next week we're gonna look at the weapons of spiritual prohibition and limitation. And then finally, the final week, we will look at the weapons of mental inhibition, and I'll explain those when we get there. At the end, I think you'll have a fairly good, not a comprehensive, but a fairly good picture of the ways that the enemy goes about attacking us through oppression and influence, the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the pride of life, the world, the flesh, and the devil. But for today, let us consider these two which we have learned. Have false ideas encroached into your heart Self, science falsely so-called, empty religious devotion, perhaps other false ideas of which the Spirit of God has impressed upon your heart as as the message has gone on. Do you need to, to spend some time today in humble repentance for allowing these lies to overcome the truth of God in your heart and mind? What about temporal gratification? Have you yielded to the deceits of the enemy calling you to give the better part which is the spiritual rewards of love and of humility, of obedience and of submission for the temporal gratifications of the things of this life, the things which cannot give anything but emptiness. Have you become focused upon earthly possessions, earthly riches, earthly honor, earthly power, success as the world around us defines it, the rudiments of this world, the philosophies and traditions of men, things that are not after Christ, at the expense of the things which truly matter, knowledge of God, walking by faith, living in obedience, submission, loving one another, all of these things that are in Christ. Don't allow the enemy to strip you of the better part, Christian. Colossians 2 tells us we are complete in him. If you feel as though you need something that this world has to offer in order to be complete, you're living under a false idea because we are complete in Christ. We referenced Hebrews 11 earlier. Hebrews 11 is the record of men and women who deemed the suffering of this present time as not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us. Can you count yourself among those who live that way? Among those who think that way? Or have these false ideas? Temporal gratification, subverted your capacity to walk as Christ has called you to walk. Next time we'll consider these last two, or next two weeks we'll consider these last two. I think we've got enough to think on this week and to pray on this week. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota.